Hi, Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist. Welcome to episode 404. Continuing with our really hardcore colonial trades. You know, forget just the uh, um, the, the joiner and the, the mason. I mean, these are really extended versions to make a community thrive and be built from the ground up. Uh, so we're going to move on with episode 404 again. Uh, we're going to talk about the millwright. So... So what I would say, like, stop sometime where an old road crosses a river. Look upstream, and with luck, you'll spot the tumble remains of an old water-powered mill. And, uh, you know, offhand, I could probably tell you where there are 40 or 50 in the, uh, the South Jersey region here alone. I mean, all that's left are foundations, and um, there is a, a couple local reproduction ones that have been rebuilt where the other ones have totally deteriorated. So... Um, they were bound and plentiful for grains to uh, cutting lumber. And remember, for the Samuel Shivers house at, in uh, historic Woodstown, New Jersey, um, Shivers actually built a wood mill uh, before 1700, which, uh, where the spillway is on, the, uh, on Woodstown Lake. So, and they used that water power there to cut the timbers for the Shivers house. So. So, uh, you know, local mills for us, but all over the tri-state area, Delaware, Pennsylvania, um, New York. So here, um, there once stood the oak equivalent of a 40-ton watch, a wooden machine that captured energy from the river and directed it to spin a grindstone or pull a saw blade. And... Uh, you know, one local one that I'm, I'm very disappointed in, in the, the New Jersey Park Service, which is a huge, huge disappointment. They uh, they run Basto Village, and they are letting it fall down. We did some Instagram from there, I think going back to the, the summer sometimes. Um, but uh, they're letting all the structures literally fall apart. And um, as a kid, probably uh, pre, pre-five, I was taken there to watch the sawmill, and that was one of the most invigorating points of my life to first catch a waff of uh, pine bean cut. It was just magical, and the, the curls. I remember p- picking up some curls and putting them in a uh, uh, one of, an old Kodak 12 uh, film box. So, uh, so, as I say, little remains today to testify to the skill of the most sophisticated practical men of early America, the millwrights. Few woodcrafters face challenges such as the massive scale of the millwright. Simply moving the huge timbers, a single one which can outweigh two, say, Buick Electras, two huge cars of the 1950s, calls for extraordinary ingenuity. Just finding big trees and straight enough can take months. Yet, although the timbers that make up the huge mill gears are correspondingly large also. The joints between them must be perfect with an allowable play of precisely zero. So a wheel is kind of like a heart. The heart of the mill is its water wheel and the heart of the wheel is its axle. This must be strong enough to support the four ton dead load of the wheel and the weight of the force of rushing water as well. Only heart of white oak will do. Two feet in diameter, 18 feet long. That's one mighty big piece of wood. 
You could plant a garden to see it, it'll come up in time it takes to hew such a timber. And you could start a family and see your children half grown before it would be fully seasoned. The axle of the water wheel also serves as its hub and is home to a woodworking joint unique to the millwright's trade. Long ago, millwrights developed a way to make an extraordinarily strong eight-spoked wheel by using only four long timbers that interlock inside the axle itself. They lap-jointed the timbers together where they crossed at their midpoint, making a joint that could then be reassembled within elongated mortises cut entirely through the axle. This unique joint allows the spokes to radiate in the same plane and ensures that they can never slip or pull loose out of the hub. The lap joint can be cut with ordinary carpenter's tools, but mortising through two feet of white oak is quite another story, believe me. Anyone who's done mortising can testify to this. The millwright uses special heavy mortising chisels, and the only ones I've run across in the last 25-30 years are either antiques or ones from Robert Sorby of Sheffield, England. A typical one and a half inch wide millwright's chisel measures 19 inches long and weighs about three and a half pounds, as much as a regular felling axe. It takes a powerful swing of a heavy mallet to drive one of these babies through the oak. So let's talk about gearing up. In all but the simplest mills, the millwright must now make the gears that will direct and temper the power captured by the water wheel. It is a job that calls for super precision, for whereas the water wheel must mesh only with the accommodating river, the gears will pit wood against wood in an endless search for flaws in craftsmanship and of materials. Every gear begins as a toothless wheel, for only when a gear is on its axle can the millwright situate the mortises for the replaceable applewood cog teeth. Turning the gear as if it were on a lathe, the millwright inscribes the center line for the cog mortises and then paces off their locations around its circumference with a pair of dividers. Boring and chopping the hundred mortises can take days, but the work can't be rushed. The hundred tapered shanks of the cogs, the tooth ends are still rough blocks at this point, must be fitted perfectly into their mortises. Should one of them come loose, the shock created by the sudden jump of the adjoining gear could break out the rest of the teeth before the frantic miller could close the sluice and stop the wheel from turning. Only when the cogs have been sledgehammered in around the wheel can they be shaped into the proper gear teeth. Using a scribing tool, driven into a stationary mill timber. The millwright marks the final circumference on an oversized cog block as the assistant slowly turns the wheel. When all have been sawn off on this line as their finished length, the millwright must then pace off the precise tooth spacing around the cogs and set them and reset them with dividers until the circle ends are at the exact point where it began. Sometimes the needed adjustment is so small that it can only be made 
by filing away part of the divider joints. When the intervals are finally even, the millwright carefully pairs away the tough wood to shape the teeth. All must be identical in shape and spacing, for if one stands out, it will wear unevenly and the problem will get worse, not better, with time. When a tooth is out of step, it can be heard clearly when the mill is running and will recite the craftsman's faults with every turn. The even rumble, that is music to the miller's ear, is achieved only through the unremitting diligence and care of the millwright's construction techniques. Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist, signing out. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Please pass these uh, episodes of the traditional trades along to your friends and anyone else who's interested in the, the development of historic tools. Thanks for listening.